Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 1 is our passage. We are not going to have a traditional Palm Sunday message today. I just want to get through 2 Samuel before we take a break from our series, a look at the book for next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. But uh, 2 Samuel is where we are today. We are summarizing the books of the Bible, book by book, so that we can understand the big picture of how the scriptures hang together. And here's the key concept today. Right now, God is preparing you to serve His purposes. God has a purpose to accomplish, and He wants to accomplish that through you. Today, we're going to look at 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is a book about David, the good king of Israel. And as we overview the book, we see that David reigns for 40 years. And during his rule, he unites the people. He establishes a strong monarchy. He moves the center of government and the center of religion to Jerusalem, which is promptly renamed the city of David. He frees the people from the threat of the Philistines and of the remaining Canaanite tribes. In 2 Samuel, we see David's strengths his faithfulness, his sincerity, and his courage. But we also see his failures, failures born of lust and pride. David is the feature character of 2 Samuel, but God is the hero. Over and over again, where David experiences victory, we read, for God was with him. And it is God who chooses David and his house to be the line of the Messiah. In 2 Samuel 7, we read, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The forever king, Jesus, will be in the line of David. We can summarize the book of 2 Samuel by thinking of it in three sections. In chapters 1 through 10, we hear about the good news of David's rule. We'll call that David's fame. And then in chapters 11 through 20, we read the bad news about David's behavior. We'll call that David's shame. And then in the last couple chapters, 21 through 24, we see isolated stories about the activities and the legacy of David. We'll call that David's name. But it begins, 2 Samuel chapter 1 begins exactly where we left off in 1 Samuel with a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. Saul and his army have lost that battle. In fact, you'll remember Saul and his son Jonathan both are killed. And an Amalekite young man comes to David from that battlefield and he tells a lie. Now the reader knows it's a lie, but David doesn't know it's a lie because David hasn't been part of the battle up north. At this time in David's life, he's actually living with the Philistines. And the Philistines have gone to war against the Israelites, and the Philistine generals have wisely said, well, we don't want David to fight with us. He probably will turn on us during the battle. He's not going to fight his own people, so leave him behind. And during this battle against the Philistines, David stays down south in a city called Ziklag, and the battle is up north. In fact, we have a map. I want to show you the map. You see, the green arrow is where the battle against the Philistines takes place and Saul dies. The red arrow is where David is, is waiting it all out. But a young man comes from the scene of the battle to David with news. But what he tells is a lie. We'll pick up the story in reading uh, in verse 4 of chapter 1. The man is arriving to speak with David. What happened, David asked. Tell me. 
He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I am still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he would not survive. Now we know that that's not how Saul came to die. We know from reading in 1 Samuel that Saul actually in desperation fell on his own sword and committed suicide. But you can understand the temptation that this young man is experiencing. He comes across the body of Saul there in the battlefield. He steals the crown and some of the other jewelry that Saul had, and he comes down south to tell David about it, and he thinks to himself, David has been enemies with Saul for years. I'll be able to score points with David if I tell him that I am the one who killed Saul. But notice David's reaction in verse 14. David asked him, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And you get the sense that things are not going to go as planned for this young man. And that's the case. You see, David himself has refrained from killing Saul, even though he had the opportunity many times. Because even though David and Saul were enemies, David respected the office. He knew that God had anointed him king. And David has this young man killed on the spot. He pays with his life for his ignorance. And we, and we turn the page to chapter 2, and David is declared king. He's declared king in Hebron, which is in the south. You saw that south, southern section. But almost simultaneously in the north, a son of Saul, Ishbosheth, is declared king in the north. So we have a division of the nation, and civil war breaks out with David and his forces in the south and Ishbosheth and the house of Saul in the north. And if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, we see a summary of this battle. It says, The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. The war was not going well for Ishbosheth, and he had a general named Abner. And Ishbosheth and Abner personally could not get along. They just were at odds with one another. And eventually, Ishbosheth accused Abner of sleeping with one of the women in Saul's harem, which would have been an insult to the house of Saul. We're never told whether or not that's true. But Abner, in verse 8, flies off the handle. He is enraged by the accusation. He defects to David's side and comes south, pledging his allegiance now to David. David is very happy to let bygones be bygones with General Abner if he's willing to fight on his side now. And, and so he begins to introduce him around. But the thing is that David already has a general named Joab. And in one of the battles that has passed, Joab's brother has been killed by Abner. So Joab is not so pleased to have General Abner by his side. And when David's not looking, Joab kills Abner. We're all following this? Meanwhile, in the north, things are looking bad for Ishbosheth. His, his troops are losing, his general is defecting, and finally, what, what happens in chapter 4, the people get fed up with him, and he is assassinated. 
Now, those who assassinate Ishbosheth in the north haven't heard about the way that David reacts to people who kill kings. And so, just like the young man in chapter 1, they come thinking that they can score points with David. Having killed Ishbosheth, they cut off his head, they bring it down to the south with, with them to prove that they were, you know, the ones who killed Ishbosheth. How do you think that goes for them? Well, in chapter 4, verse 12, we read how it goes. So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and their feet, and they hung their bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Do you see the irony there? These two men could not get along in life, and now they're buried in the same grave. And in chapter 5, verse 1, David becomes king of the United Kingdom of Israel. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. And they inaugurate David as king, and uh, he becomes, uh, his reign begins over the entire nation. And the first thing he needs to do is find a place to locate his palace. And the place that he wants is a city called Jerusalem. Now you need to remember that when uh, Joshua's conquest began in the land, Jerusalem was never conquered. Jerusalem was a natural fortress, and, and a people called Jebusites lived in Jerusalem. And all this time, they were, kind of, they were kind of there. And David saw that this would make a good fortress, this would make a good capital. And so through great effort, David de- uh, defeated the Jebusites and made Jerusalem his uh, capital city. And, and what the Jebusites called the stronghold of Zion became the city of David. And so in this period that we call David's fame, he experiences victory after victory after victory. But I want you to see that the seeds, the hints of David starting to lose the battle against his own impulses are found in this section in chapter 3. If you read chapter 3 carefully, you'll find that while he was in Hebron, he had six children by six different women. And when he goes to Jerusalem, he, takes, he continues this practice of taking on more and more wives and concubines for his pleasure. He's using these marriages to solidify political alliances, but that is exactly what God does not want him to do. God wants him to rely on him. In fact, anticipating the fact that a king might come along one day, Moses, back in Deuteronomy 17, specifically said, he, the king, must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. And both David and Solomon break that command. One man has said, for successful people, there are always four temptations, and they're always the same four. The first one is silver, tempted to hoard money. The second one is sloth, tempted to grow lazy. The third is sex, the temptation to fleshly lust. And the fourth is self, the temptation to pride. And we will see that David falls prey to three out of those four in the book of 2 Samuel. But during this period, in the next few chapters, things seem to be going right. In chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem out of Abinadab's house where we saw it was placed last week. In chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David. Your house will be the forever kingdom. In chapter 8, we record military victories of David against the Moabites, Syria, Ammon, Amalekites, Philistines, Edom, and Zobah. And then by the time we get to chapter 9, David is in a place of great security. Things are going well. He's established his rule 
and he feels charitable toward the family of Saul that he has so humiliated in the past. And he wants to do something nice for one of the descendants of Saul, and he asks if anybody from Saul's family is still alive. And lo and behold, there is a son of Jonathan. Jonathan was David's great friend and the son of King Saul. And the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, is still alive, but he's a cripple. But David wants to honor the family, and so he brings Mephibosheth down to the palace. He gives him a plot of land. He gives him honor, and he, and he welcomes him with uh, hospitality for the rest of his life. And in chapter 10, that feeling of uh, honoring others and being charitable continues, and something happens in David's life in chapter 10 that changes the course of his, of his existence, but we really don't know that it's going to work that way as it begins. Because in chapter 10, the king of Ammon dies. Now, Ammon is a country located on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. Ammon is exactly where, Jer uh, where Jordan is today. Can you picture that on the map? The nation Jordan on the eastern side of the river across from Israel. In fact, here's a little bit of trivia. What's the name of the capital city of Jordan today? Ammon. Right, it is the verbal descendant of the fact that these are the Ammonites, okay, the Jordanians. And the king of Ammon dies, and his son takes his place, and David sends dignitaries over to Ammon to create a truce, to make a, a peaceful resolution between the two nations. But we'll pick up the story because that, that, that new young king believes that these, these diplomats are actually spies. And here's what happens, chapter 10, verse 4. It says, so Hanun seized David's men, shaved off half of, their, of each man's beard, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and sent them away. You get the picture there? Then David was told about this. He sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, and then come back. When the Ammonites realized that they had become a stench in David's nostrils. They hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rehob and Zobah, as well as the king of Makkah with 1,000 men and also 12,000 men from Tob. In other words, the Ammonites put together a mercenary army, and war comes to Israel once again. But the thing about mercenary armies is they're only fighting for money, and they can't spend the money if they're dead. And so when things go bad, mercenaries flee. And that's exactly what happened. Israel easily wins this war. The mercenaries f flee, and, uh, and so there's no problem with uh, them defeating the Ammonites. And it is in the context of this easy war that chapter 11 and the scene of David and Bathsheba is set. Because now we're coming into the period of David's shame. Look at 11 verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men. You see, this was an easy war. This was a mop-up operation. Most of the Ammonites had been defeated. They just had a few little holdout cities. And David thought to himself, why should I bother to go out to war with the guys? I'll send Joab instead. And because David was feeling lazy, remember sloth? Because he was feeling lazy, he was not where he should have been. And because he was not where he should have been, he had the chance to do what he should not have done. Read verse 2. One evening, David got out from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. 
Now, I'm going to trace with you the effects of the sin that David uh, had with Bathsheba on the rest of his life. But I want you to see, as we look at those effects, if David could have known what would come as a result of that lustful glance, he would have gouged his eyes out before looking at that woman. But he didn't know. Just like none of us know the consequence of our sin. That is why we have these kinds of stories to give us a warning in advance. As we read on, look at the chapter, uh, look at verse four. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. She, he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. How would you like for the worst thing you ever did to be remembered for all time by all people? No sin has gotten more pressed than the sin of David and Bathsheba, except maybe the sin of Adam and Eve. David was careless about his duty and Bathsheba was careless about her modesty. David made a choice to sin, a conscious decision to sin. This was a planned for, prepared for, consensual affair. David, who had been such an inspiration for so long of devotion to God, could not stand up under the pressure of seeing that woman. And in the aftermath, David seeks to cover up his sin. But when nothing works, he ends up killing or having Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed. And David is now an adulterer and a murderer. And none of this was foreseen when he decided to adapt his lifestyle to be like the other kings. None of this was foreseen when he decided, I can sit out this little war. They don't need me to be involved. None of this was foreseen when he leaned over and took a look at Mrs. Uriah taking a bath. But sin will always take you farther than you want to go. David wanted a little fling. He wanted a little fun. Bathsheba was acting a little flirty, but what came was disaster. 11.27 picks up the story. After the time of mourning, that's for Uriah's death, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. The thing that David needed most of all, God gave him. What he needed most of all was something he didn't want at all. He needed confrontation. He needed someone to speak the truth to him. And God sent the prophet Nathan, and Nathan confronts David with this message, God sees what you do in the dark. And God is not pleased. Consequences will come. And David is reminded, as we should be reminded, that even what we think is consensual and there's no victim, there's always a victim. All sin is against God, and you are the victim as you step out of God's will for you. And to his eternal credit, David receives that confrontation. He changes his heart. He shows us repentance and confession in verse 13 of chapter 12. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. And though David has confession, there are still consequences for his actions. And there is a wording embedded in Nathan's confrontation with David to show us that the consequences are not just the fact that this baby will die. They are woven into the rest of David's life. He says, the sword will never depart from your house. 
And when you trace the rest of David's life, you see the consequence of this sin woven all throughout. Let me give you the details. You follow along as I name the chapters because we're just going to skim through this. But the baby dies and David lives with violence the rest of his days. In chapter 13, it plays out this way. His son Ammon also commits sexual sin, sexual sin and rapes his half-sister Tamar. In chapter 13, the end of it, Tamar's brother Absalom waits two years and then exacts revenge on, on uh, Ammon and kills him. In chapter 14 and 15, David fails to execute justice on Absalom, lets him flee. He's, he's in exile for three years and then comes back and challenges David for the throne. In chapter 16, David fears for his life because his own son is ready to kill him. He flees the capital and Absalom becomes the king for a period of time. In chapter 17 and 18, Absalom and his forces are seeking to kill David once and for all. But David's men are experienced fighting men and they have the victory and Absalom is killed. And in chapter 19, David mourns so profoundly for the loss of his son that he actually becomes an embarrassment to his men who fought on his side. And then in chapter 20, the men with David return to Jerusalem to pick up where they left off and, and David rule. And he finds that in the confusion of Absalom's rebellion, the north has pulled away from the union with the south. And they have established a new kingdom and put a new man on the throne of up north. His name is Sheba. So no, no sooner do they get back to Jerusalem than the fighting men have to go up and defend the United Kingdom. And in chapter 20, the people who are in the city where Sheba is hiding are, are so scared of David's forces that they assassinate Sheba, cut off his head and throw it over the wall. And David's able to go back. But did you follow this chain of events? There was a murder of a rebellious leader named Sheba following a civil war, following the killing of David's son Absalom, following a rebellion by that son, following David's failure to require justice of Absalom, following Absalom's murder of his half-brother Ammon, following Ammon's rape of his half-sister Tamar, following David's murder of Uriah, following adultery between David and Bathsheba, following a lust-filled glance on a woman who let him look. Do you think that he would have gouged out his eyes rather than see all of that happen? I think so. But you can never see where sin will take you. And David didn't see where sin was going to take him. It will always take you farther than you want to go. Well, the last section of the book of 2 Samuel is an epilogue, if you will. The life lessons learned by David. It's a collection of things that just make up his legacy. In chapter 21, we learn that he has to deal with Saul's past sins because Saul violated a treaty with the Gibeonites and David has to make it right. In chapter 22, interestingly enough, is exactly the same as Psalm 18. What the author of the book is doing there is he's, he's inserting Psalm 18 and saying, now I want you to remember that this guy who was such a warrior was also a poet. And here's an example of his poetry. And by the time you get to chapter 24, we see the last recorded major sin of David's life. And it's the sin born of pride. David counts his fighting men. It's a, it's a, a census that he takes in order to congratulate himself, kind of putting the, the glory on himself and his, his fighters for all the victories that he's been experiencing. And God is offended by that. 
And so David needs to make amends. He needs to give, give a sacrifice. And he decides in order to make that sacrifice to God that he's going to make it in a very visible, high, flat place. And so he goes to a threshing floor owned, interestingly enough, by a Jebusite who's still living in the land. He offers to buy that threshing floor. The Jebusite is willing to give it to him. He's so honored that the king wants to make a sacrifice on his property. But in chapter 24, verse 24, we see David's reaction. He says, but the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. He recognizes that real repentance needs to be demonstrated by cost. And so he buys that high, flat threshing floor. And years later, because that area is in the family, owned by the family of David, when Solomon decides to build a temple, he uses that high, flat place as the location of the temple. We'll read that in Second Chronicles. But I want you to see a picture of that place. That's what it looks like today. That high, flat threshing floor we call the Temple Mount. That's where the Dome of the Rock stands today. The Apostle Paul looked back on David's life, and he summarized it this way in Acts 13. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, and he was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. Even in the struggles, even in all the ups and downs, David is the greatest king Israel ever known, has ever known until one day the Messiah himself will come. But I want you to see the way that Paul words that summary of his life, when he had served God's purposes in his generation. Each of us can insert our name in that sentence. When Mark Mufuchi had served God's purposes in his generation, he fell asleep. We each can insert our, our name there because we each have a purpose. We have a fairly short time to find it out. But when we do, we serve God's purpose for his kingdom and glory in our day. What a tragedy if David never found his purpose. And it is a tragedy if you don't find yours, because you have one. Your purpose right now may be far beyond what you can imagine. It certainly was far beyond what that shepherd boy on the hills outside Bethlehem could imagine. But God knew what he was doing, and he knows what he's doing in your life today. And what he's doing is this. He's preparing you to serve God and His purposes in this generation.